Hello, everybody, and thank you very much for um, coming. I feel it's terribly noble of you to uh, sacrifice um, one of the very first spring days and a Saturday at that. So I'm, I'm really honoured that you're here and somewhat alarmed. Um, can you um, hear me all right at the back? And if you, if you suddenly can't, why don't you wave at me? Um, <clears throat> so my role, oh, another thing, uh, you've got a very daunting looking handout, um, which um, I want to reassure you um, that you don't need to consult at all. Um, if you don't wish to, it's not meant to be intimidating, but rather to give you um, the passages in full in their original, which I'm going to refer to, um, and perhaps some more um, but just if you want to look more at them later. So please don't feel you have to uh, study Middle English. And um, as long as I remember to change them, you should also have some attractive images to look at, uh, which I want to thank Victoria Patton uh, for making look far more beautiful than I ever could. So my role in the Hearing the Voice project is to bring a long cultural perspective um, to voice hearing. But I want to also say that it's a privilege to work with such a wonderful team of researchers, and especially for a medievalist to have the opportunity to interact with such a range of people outside my discipline. So my colleagues and our partners bring to my work new ways of seeing. And putting past and present into conversation can lead to some fascinating places, different ways of understanding, continuities, but also intriguing contrasts and new perspectives on individual experience. So I want to give you some examples of spiritual voice hearing within a very different thought world. First, um, two late 14th century English voices, the deeply contemplative voice of Julian of Norwich, and the more worldly voice of Marjorie Kemp. And then just slightly later, a continental voice um, of one of the most celebrated and dangerously in the world voice hearers of all time, Joan of Arc. But first, um, a bit about the very different understandings of mind, body and world in the medieval period. <coughs> so, in the pre-Cartesian thought world, concepts of body and mind were much more integrated. Hippocrates' theory of the four humours, which was extended by Galen in the second century, underpinned the notion of a mind-body continuum. Humours shaped both mind and body, and their balance was essential to both physical and mental health. And this is an idea that resonates, of course, with much more recent ideas about the connection between thinking and feeling, mind and body, but which took a very long time to come back into fashion. By the end of the 13th century, when the English texts I work on were starting to be written, a new interest in psychology was developing. And the senses were understood to be put together by the inner senses, which were believed to be situated in the ventricles of the brain. Aquinas, who was a key thinker for the late Middle Ages, 
described thoughts as dependent on forms, sense impressions, which involved perception and response, which passed through the imagination, cognition and memory. And both thoughts and emotions required the process of these phantasmata, as he called them, forms or sensory images being put together in the brain. And this notion of inner senses, the idea of an inner eye and an inner ear, meant that the possibility of visionary experience and hearing inner voices was very real. And all this was coloured too by a keen awareness of a multifaceted supernatural, which included not only God and the devil, but a spirit world just beyond human reach of angels, demons, ghosts and fairies. <coughs> the supernatural might, might manifest itself in visitations, visions, miracles, also more alarmingly in demonic intervention and temptation. And that assumption that there are powerful forces out there which may manifest themselves in divine or demonic or simply other voices very profoundly shapes the ways that medieval texts present individual experience. And it's in the mystical writing of the Middle Ages that these otherworldly encounters are most fully explored. <clears throat> so the English writers I want to focus on, Julian of Norwich, um, associated with this image, though I actually can't find what this image is, so if you know, uh, let me know later. Um, but I think it evokes something of what I want to talk about. The English writers I want to focus on, Julian Norwich, Marjorie Kemp, inherited long-established ideas about the connections between revelation and prayer, contemplation and ascetic practice that, um, as I think we may hear more about later from Chris and Hilary, can be traced back to the earliest Christian thinkers. And such ideas are often associated with what came to be termed mysticism, an emphasis on immediate experience, immediate knowledge of God through individual experience. One mystical tradition emphasised a via negativa, a negative path of contemplation that ascends by leaving behind the intellect and the emotions to enter into what the Middle English text uh, calls the cloud of unknowing in which God is experienced. But another tradition, particularly in the later Middle Ages, emphasised affective piety, the importance of the emotions in engaging with Christ's humanity and the power of affect to move the individual to spiritual understanding. And this had a special appeal in lay devotional practice and for women who were unlikely to have access to the Latin theological tradition of the church. So extreme physical affect, um, intense emotional experience 
whether it was achieved through illness or ascetic practice or rapt contemplation, was sought after because it could occasion an altered or detached visionary state that opened the inner senses to spiritual experience. Mystical experience is most often associated with revelatory vision, but mystical texts also provide striking cultural models of authorised voice hearing. So the mid-14th century devotional writings of the Yorkshire hermit Richard Roller, um, whose studies at Oxford were actually sponsored by the Archdeacon of Durham, um, Thomas Neville, for example, reflect this personal, affective, experiential emphasis. So his treatise, um, The Fire of Love, written around 1343, opens <coughs> with a description of how he feels, how he feels literally the warmth of the flame of love and he touches his breast to see whether his heart is actually on fire and later he recounts how he hears celestial music as he's praying his soul reaching up towards heaven for Rolla, sensual imagery is crucial in evoking the mysteries of the divine and the joys of heaven the popular devotional text known as the Prick of Love and perhaps translated by Roller's near contemporary Walter Hilton similarly urges the reader to fervent desire. The true lover must partake in Christ's passion with all his senses and the writer describes a multi-sensory visionary experience where he literally enters very graphically into Christ's wounds. With my eyes opened me thought that my eyes were filled full of his blood. And so I went in groping till I came to the innerest of his heart. The moving of the soul through such experience is the great subject, though in very different ways, of both Julian and Marjorie, as it is of Roller and Tilton earlier. But there's also distrust of such extreme visionary experience. Marjorie Kemp asks Julian of Norwich, who she goes to visit in 1413, whether there's any deceit in the full many holy speeches and dalliance conversation that our Lord spake to her soul and in her many wonderful revelations. Such revelations are dangerous, Julian responds. They may reflect not the moving of a good spirit, but rather of an evil spirit. And they have to be judged by whether they move the soul to love, chastity and compassion. And devotional writers of this period refer repeatedly to the dangers of such sensory experience the possibility that what seem revelations may be sent by the devil rather than by God, a possibility that Marjorie returns to across her book. Revelations warns the author of the cloud of unknowing should not be expected to be physically manifest. They have spiritual meaning. The imagination 
And the imagination, he argues, has the dangerous ability to project images or hallucinations onto the mind, deceiving fantasies. Hilton, in The Scale of Perfection, distinguishes vision, both imaginative and bodily, from true contemplation. And he's very suspicious of sensual experience, whether it's bodily or within the imagination. So he refers critically to these experiences that are sometimes sought after, either sounding in the ear or savouring in the mouth or smelling in the nose or any feelable heat as if it were fire glowing and warming the breast, like Crawler. Though they be never so comfortable and likeable, he says, they are not verily contemplation. He does recognise that the fire of divine love may affect or even afflict the body and that visions may be good, affected by angels, but he also cautions that they may be caused by a wicked angel or demon. And his treatise of angel's song is perhaps written in response, critical response to Roller's um, fire of love. But it's precisely physical sensory experience that characterises Julian, Marjorie's and indeed Joan's visions and that leads them on their spiritual journeys. The contrast points up, I think, just how risky and even suspect such experience could seem within its own time. But although delusion had to be guarded against, it was also recognised that visions, like Julian's own showings, might be divinely inspired, sent by good spirits. So Marjorie also consults the Carmelite William Southfield, who's said to have been the recipient of visions and visitations. And again, meekness and virtuous living are commended as proof that such experience reflects God's grace. So God's good visions prompt good living. So these writings also chart voyages of discovery and discernment. Areas. <laughs> Put that down. Um, no, it's fine. It's just I don't want to. Oh, I forgot to change that anyway. Very good. Yes. <coughs> Perfect. <coughs> so both Julian of Norwich and Marjorie Kemp begin from experiences of profoundly affective kinds, occasioned by illness, though in very different ways. So what might be termed conversion experiences or life-changing experiences, often traumatic, which cause an individual's ontological boundaries to shift. Apart from the fact that Julian was the earliest woman to write in English, and this is the image that um, Barry, Barry Windiat uses on his translation of Marjorie's work, and apart from the fact that she was a recluse or anchorite, living a cloistered holy life in a small cell adjoining St. Julian's Church, Norwich. <clears throat> Very little is known about her. Her book exists in two forms, one much shorter, probably written after, soon after the revelations that she describes, 
And you can see um, this text in the wonderful Hearing Voices exhibition. And certainly from me, this is the, the amazing highlight of the exhibition that we could borrow this uh, first manuscript of Julian's work. And then there's a longer version written some 20 years later, reflecting on the meaning of the visions. The text is not an autobiography, but its narratorial voice is unique and immediate, and it stems from vivid personal experience. So Julian recounts how she prays to be brought near to death so that she may live more to the worship of God. And it's in her extreme illness in 1373, at the age of about 30, that she experiences her visions. <coughs> Many of the 16 showings or revelations are compelling in their physicality, and they're often multi-sensory, though showing is the term most commonly used. Julian refers to herself in the early version as simple and unlettered, but her revisions and her references suggest that at least by the later version, she could read and write, though she may have used an amanuensis. And the visions underpin an elaborate theological argument of a sophisticated kind. She demonstrates an intense engagement with the embodied nature of experience and with the connections between senses, affect and cognition. She's discriminating in the details she offers, identifying different types of visionary experience. Some visions are seen with the bodily sight, as in her extended vision of the crucified Christ. Others occur within the mind, as on the occasion when her understanding is led down into the seabed to see its green hills and valleys and comprehend the reach of God's protection even under deep water. Still others occur within the ghostly or spiritual eye, as in her vision of Mary, who's seen ghostly in bodily likeness. Sometimes these kinds of vision coexist. She says, all this was showed by three things, that is to say, by bodily sight, and by word formed in my understanding and by ghostly sight. And the last, the spiritual or ghostly, is the most difficult, she says, for her to convey. In her depiction of Christ's bleeding body, Julian is explicit about how apparently physical experience is occasioned through God's revelation to the inward eye. In ghostly sight, I saw the bodily sight of the plenteous bleeding of the head. Visions can be horrifyingly graphic, as in the description of the body of Christ withering on the cross, and they're often multi-sensory. Even in the 16th and last revelation, Julian experiences in sleep the terrifying presence of the devil grinning red and black spotted, taking her by the throat and waking, she sees the smoke and smells the stench of brimstone and fire. <coughs> For her, the fire is bodily, but those with her don't perceive it. It's experienced through the inward senses on which God works. 
So medieval theories of those inner senses, which can be activated by the supernatural to imprint the imagination readily allow for this kind of model. So while the showings are fully multisensory, their affect is most of all characterised by direct experience of the divine voice. <clears throat> Julian is precise about both seeing and hearing. In the first vision, God shows her the universe as a little thing, like a hazelnut, and this is actually the page in the exhibition which has this passage on it. And she looked thereupon with the eye of her understanding, and she thought, what may this be? Hearing the answer spoken, it is all that is made. Julian conveys the impression of direct speech our good Lord said, and throughout she's explicit about hearing his voice within her mind. And I was answered in my reason, she says, and she distinguishes that experience from her own reasoning and thoughts and contemplation and her attempts to interpret. Voices are heard in the mind, but they're also heard in the soul, so she says, then he, without voice and opening of lips, forms in my, in my soul these words. All these experiences correspond with the modern phenomenology of voice hearing, where voices can be interior or exterior, but can also occur as thought insertions associated with mind or soul, or as aspects of felt presence. One aspect of Julian's journey of faith <coughs> is the process of believing that the showings are not just madness. The Lord responds by complementing bodily, physical, with spiritual sight. She says, he showed it all again within my soul with more fullhood, more detail, saying these words full mightily and full meekly, wit it now well. It was no raving that thou saw this day. The difficulty of belief is revisited in the late vision of the devil, which includes a vision of two people chattering earnestly but inaudible, calculated, Julian says, to stir me to despair. And again, the description resonates quite powerfully with some contemporary descriptions of the intrusive, frightening, and sometimes plural experience of auditory hallucination, of hearing a plethora of voices that may not be comprehensible. For Julian, God's power is also evident in the terrifying obscurity of the mind, not just in the marvelous process of vision. Seeing, in all these senses, is distinguished from understanding. It's only after 20 years that she, that she comprehends the meaning of the visions enough to write the long version of her text. As she contemplates the showings near the end of the book, she hears the voice of God speaking the interpretation. But Jesus, that in this vision informed me of all that me needeth, answered by this word and said, sin is behovable, but all shall be well and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. 
the words made famous by T.S. Eliot in his poem, Little Gidding. The showings are also listenings and conversations, which through their combined affective and cognitive force open onto deep spiritual understanding. <clears throat> the power of the inner eye and ear are also acutely evident in the book of Marjorie Kemp, written around 1436-38. Though her name is frequently linked with that of Julian, Marjorie's life could not have been more different. Um, this is the image Barry Windiat chooses to uh, put on the cover of his first translation of her work. I think he wants to show us a woman at work in her kitchen. Marjorie was married, she bore 14 children, she ran a brewing business, she travelled on pilgrimage as far as Rome and Jerusalem, but she was also a visionary who adopted a strongly ascetic life. And her references to many devotional texts, Roller, Hilton, The Prick of Love, The Lives of Holy Women, make clear how her imagination is shaped by the kind of meditative tradition I described earlier. The tradition of projecting the self into Christ's life and passion. Roller's sensual fervour resonates strikingly with Marjorie's account of spiritual experience. She, but she's very different from Hilton or Roller. She doesn't set out a contemplative path to God. Nor, like Julian, does she interpret her experiences in sophisticated theological terms. It's part, of, it's part of its character that her book is mediated by two, two scribes, two amanuenses. There's a vision, or rather a version, which, or she recounts, recounts in the prologue that there's a version uh, written first on the continent by a scribe who had neither good English nor good German. Um, and then, much later, this is interpreted, at first failed to be read, and then finally, with the assistance of the divine, uh, the second scribe can read it, rewrites it, adapts it, and adds um, a number of chapters to it. And it's all some 20 years after her earliest experiences. So there are many questions about the status of the book, the role of the scribes in its shaping. But throughout, it's, it's animated by Marjorie's very distinctive voice. <clears throat> Though it's so different from Julian's intellectual, reflective narrative, it too conveys both the multi-sensory quality of vision and the crucial role of voice in such experience. And it too differentiates between <coughs> different kinds of voice hearing. Marjorie's conversion experience too is one of illness, though um, of a different sort, a period of madness, as she describes it, experienced after the birth of her first child, what we might term a psychotic episode. But for Marjorie, it's a battle over her soul, 
as Deville's shrieking threats pour at her as if to swallow her up in, her, in their fiery mouths, and that's what this page recounts. In response, Jesus appears restoring Marjorie to her wits. He appears as she lies in bed in likeness of a man most seemly, most beauteous, most amiable that ever might be seen with man's eye, clad in a mantle of purple silk, sitting upon her bedside and saying to her, daughter, why hast thou forsaken me and I forsook never thee? The familiar, the familiar uh, trope of Christ as spiritual bridegroom is rendered across the book with particular immediacy and intimacy. So he says later, therefore must I needs be homely with thee and lie in thy bed with thee. Take me to thee as for thy wedded husband and thy dear worthy darling. Thou may take me boldly in the arms of thy soul and kiss my mouth, my head and my feet as sweetly as thou wilt. Marjorie adopts a life of chastity, assured by Christ in a strikingly radical statement that her spiritual worth is comparable to that of virgins in heaven. Though demonic visions, often grotesquely sexual, recur across Marjorie's experience, suggesting the difficulty, too, of the chaste life. Like Julian, Marjorie emphasises the ghostly eye. Here, seeing is shorthand for the engagement of all the senses, as Marjorie enters into a dramatic spiritual world, where she participates in definitive biblical scenes. Mary and her mother Anne, the nativity, the crucifixion, Mary's death. She busies, she busies herself as the maidservant of St Anne, looking after the child Mary. She begs clothes and food in, in Bethlehem, swaddling the baby. And after the crucifixion, she returns again to serve Mary by making a good caudal, a drink of gruel and spiced wine. So her feminine roles as mother and housekeeper are enacted within this world of the, the inward eye. But despite the notably multisensory quality of Marjorie's experience, the voice remains preeminent. So lying in bed, she hears with her bodily ears a loud voice calling Marjorie. On waking, God speaks directly to her daughter. The book is shaped by Marjorie's conversations with God, but not always, often, but not always, uh, described as visitations while she's praying or contemplating. So, for example, her vision of St Anne is inspired by her direct question as she lies in meditation. Jesus, what shall I think, she says. And Jesus' answer, daughter, think on my mother, opens out onto the vision which is described in terms of seeing, but um, fully multi-sensory. Some experiences involve an external voice. In others, Jesus answers Marjorie in her soul. So as with Julian, there's an acute awareness of different ways of hearing, as there is of different kinds of seeing, 
exterior, interior, in the mind, in the soul. Sounds more generally become a special aspect of God's teaching. One of Marjorie's earliest visions is auditory, recalling Roller's experience of heavenly music, but much more involuntary. She lies in bed and she suddenly hears a sound of melody so sweet and delectable her thought as she had been in paradise. And it's this music that leads her to adopt a chaste marriage with her husband, much against his will. She emphasises the diversity of sounds heard with the bodily ear that characterise her revelatory experience of the Holy Spirit. So she has diverse tokens in her bodily hearing. One, a sound as it had been a pair of bellows blowing in her ear. And she interprets it as the sound of the Holy Ghost. And then our Lord turned the sound into the voice of a dove. And then he turned it into the voice of a little bird, which is called a red breast, that sang full merrily, oftentimes in her right ear. Typically precise. The emphasis on sound seems fitting for an author whose voice is marked not by words only, but by mysterious cryings. Plenteous tears and boisterous sobbings, loud cryings and shrill shriekings that can't be contained. The more she tries to contain this crying and roaring, the more it bursts out wondrously loud. Marjorie's recognition of the strangeness of her own conduct is a recurring subject of her conversations with the Lord, and the book realistically depicts the very mixed reception she receives. Some are moved, but others are annoyed. Many believe her to be ill or possessed. The strange invasion of the body becomes at once a physical sign sent by God and a spiritual test and the means to illuminate the soul. But as well, Marjorie's crying seemed to become the voice of vision, reflecting the ineffability of the divine, the impossibility of fully articulating vision in language. Well, Julian's choice to lead the life of the recluse was a radical and arduous one, but it also perhaps provided a kind of protection. As Julian's and Marjorie's texts both indicate, this kind of visionary experience and voice hearing were always subject to question, were they inspired by God or the devil, demons or angels, were they raving? Theologians developed serious methods of probing such experience and their judgments depended, as Julian's advice to Marjorie indicates, on the virtue of the individual recipient of such experience, the congruity of it with church doctrine and the correspondence of what the voices said with Christian virtues. Heresy, belief counter to orthodox doctrine, was viewed as deeply dangerous. And particularly on the continent, special inquisitorial court processes were developed by the church to combat heresy. Stepping onto a public stage and claiming the authority of voices or a visionary experience more generally was dangerous. 
Marjorie may have known of the less fortunate Flemish Beguine Marguerite Porrette, whose treatise The Mirror of Simple Souls was connected with dangerous doctrines of the free spirit which rejected the teachings of the church, and Porrette was burnt as a heretic in France in 1310. Though it's interesting that her book got translated into English in the late 14th or early 15th century by a Carthusian, probably, who didn't connect it either with heresy or with a female author. Though Marjorie is um, repeatedly accused of heresy, and she's twice tried, on each occasion her responses, like her orthodox practices, prove her to be far from radical in her beliefs, and she distinguishes herself quite clearly and carefully from the so-called Lollard practices connected with the radical Oxford theologian John Wycliffe. Um, for example, illicit preaching, particularly by women. But even the authorship of a book would have been risky. <clears throat> Joan of Arc was less lucky, and her choice is much more risky. Her public life took place on a highly fraught political stage, and her voices urge specifically military political action. The backdrop of her life wasn't just the Hundred Years' War between France and England, but a France divided by civil war, and the court itself was deeply factionalized. In taking the part of the king, Charles VII, the Dauphin at first, and using the rhetoric of a country united under their God-given monarch, Joan stepped into a political vortex. Her achievements were quite extraordinary. As a 17-year-old peasant girl, she persuaded a local captain to persuade her to provide her with an escort to travel to the French court. She gained entry to the king, and she persuaded him of her divine mission. She joined the reinforcements sent by the king to the besieged city of Orléans, and she took part in a series of French victories that led to Charles VII's coronation. Eventually taken prisoner by the Burgundians, she was handed over to their allies, the English, who in turn handed her over to the church. And she was tried without the evidence of witnesses, condemned through her own testimony, and burnt at the stake for heresy on the 30th of May, 1431. 25 years later, the judgment was overturned through a nullification trial that heard evidence from her supporters. And in 1920, she was canonized. On the one hand, hers is the most well-documented trial of the Middle Ages. On the other, many gaps remain. Joan's answers were to specific scholastic questions, recorded and turned into a prose third-person account, in a sense, not so unlike what Marjorie's amanuensis does but with very different intent. Yet through the trial records, we gain a strong sense of an individual voice. And the records offer two remarkable insights into Joan's voice-hearing experiences. They're dominated by references to her voice, first identified as coming from God, later as the voices of the saints Margaret and Catherine and the archangel Michael. 
Our account of her first experience is characteristic. Then she confessed that when she was age 13, she had a voice from God to help her guide herself. And the first time she was greatly afraid. And this voice came around noon in summer in the garden of her father. And Joan had not feast fasted on the preceding day. She heard the voice on the right hand side towards the church and she rarely heard it without a light. It's striking that as with Marjorie and Julian and as for many voice hearers today, her experience can be connected with trauma. In the same year, her village of Don Remy was burned. The records make clear also a process of discernment. She identifies the voice as sent from God. After she'd heard this voice three times, she knew that this was the voice of an angel, the records say. She also said that this voice had always protected her well and she understood this voice clearly. Though voice is so emphatically mentioned, her experiences are multisensory. The voice wakes her from sleep without touching her, but it's also accompanied by other sensory experience, particularly light. And there are repeated references to the light coming at the sound of the voice. She claims to be able to see the saints and angels with the eyes of the body, as well as I see you, she says. And she describes the very opulent and precious crowns of the saints. St. Michael is a very true and upright man. She embraces the saints, feeling and touching them and smelling their sweet fragrance. The voice is closely connected with prayer, often heard at times when the bells for prayer are rung. She hears the voice. She's asked when she's heard the voice yesterday, and she says, three times during the day, once in the morning, once at Vespers, and the third time when the Ave Maria was rung in the evening. The theologian's questions reveal that, like Marjorie's, the voice is highly practical. It provides marvelous knowledge. It directs her to conduct herself well and attend church often. And it also gives political and military advice, directing each stage of her journey to the king and her military actions against the English. And it advises her to dress in male clothes, one of the great focuses of the questions. The voices promise victory and salvation, and they endorse her replies. Her replies were by the command of her voices. Marina Warner writes that Joan was not a mystic. Her visions are always of tasks to be accomplished in this world, not of the world to come. She's not writing a book of revelations. She's on trial as La Pucelle, the Virgin, God's messenger in the world, defending the King of France against the English. But we do get glimpses of Joan's inner world, of the power of the voices that guide her. Asked if this voice, which she said appeared to her, was an angel, or if it came immediately from God, or if it was the voice of a male or female saint, she answered, this voice comes from God. <clears throat> and I believe that I'm not telling you clearly what I know, and I'm much more afraid of failing them by saying something that may displease these voices than I am of answering you. 
For Julie and Marjorie and Joan, the inner world of their voices is not an escapist one, so much as one that provides an alternative framing perspective on the temporal. Conversations with our Lord are deeply personal, intimate, associated with the circumstances of the individual and their experience, but they also situate the individual within a wider world view that encompasses the internal and is made tangible through the senses. Perhaps it's not coincidental that of these three, the figure who is most dramatically in the world, Joan of Arc, <clears throat> has inspired the most artistic attention from poems and chronicles written within her own lifetime to Shakespeare's Henry VI, where Joan is the witch who summons fiends to help her on the battlefield, to Verdi's opera, to the many 20th century works inspired by her canonization, and especially, in fact, films. And these reflect in different ways, but always positively on her voices. Carl Theodore Dreyer's harrowing silent film of 1928, The Passion of Joan of Arc, shown here, evokes Joan's visionary experience <clears throat> um, only through her words. Whereas in Arthur Honegger's 1938 oratorio, Jeanne d'Arc au Boucher, or Joan of Arc at the Stake, which was made into a film by Roberto Rossellini in 1954 with Ingrid Bergman. Here, Joan is a speaking role, but the spiritual voices, the Virgin, St. Marguerite, St. Catherine, sing. Robert Bresson's 1962 film, The Trial of Joan of Arc, exclusively uses the trial records and it's set within the confines of Joan's prison, so only Joan's words evoking the supernatural. But Luc Besson's 1999 film, The Messenger, enters dramatically into her multisensory visionary experience, presenting it on screen for the viewer, the wind, the light, the figures, the voices. <clears throat> the preface to Bernard Shaw's St. Joan, his great dramatic rehabilitation of her, offers an extended discussion of her voices. Voices and visions, he says, have played many tricks with her reputation. They've been held to prove that she was mad, that she was a liar and imposter, that she was a sorceress, and finally that she was a saint. Shaw says they don't prove any of these things, but the variety of the conclusions reached show how little our matter-of-fact historians know about other people's minds, he says, or even about their own. And he says there are people in the world whose imagination is so vivid that when they have an idea, it comes to them as an audible voice, sometimes uttered by a visual figure. Shaw not so differently perhaps from medieval theologians, judges voices and visions by their consequences. Joan's actions, he says, are military and political masterstrokes that saved France. They might have been planned by Napoleon or any other illusion-proof genius. <clears throat> what was creative imagination for sure was and continues to be divine inspiration for others. So research that diagnoses Marjorie and Joan as suffering from medical conditions like epilepsy or mental illness 
seems to be deeply limited. <clears throat> Such explanations are reductive because they don't capture contemporary understandings of such experience, nor their cultural contexts. As we heard so clearly in Professor Luhrmann's lecture on Thursday, non-medical accounts of voice hearing and unusual experience, especially spiritual experience, provide much closer analogues. Like these, the unusual experiences of Julian, Marjorie and Joan need to be approached as aspects of their spiritual lives. In keeping with the ideas that shaped individual piety in this period. The works of Julian, Marjorie and in a very different way the trial records of Joan open out the nature of visionary experience. They depict its complex multi-sensory quality its all-consuming power, its revelatory potential, and profound spiritual meaning. But also the difficulties of comprehending such experience and the dangers of performing it on a public stage. There's no doubt that these women recognised the strangeness of their experiences and that others around them did too, and that they questioned the origins and their meanings, but they also embraced the richness of the inner lives shaped by those voices, voices that continue to speak to us across the centuries. Thank you. <clears throat>